Father, we desperately desire that you would enable us to number our days because we want a heart of wisdom. Lord, we don't want to live our lives in a foolish way, repeating the same mistakes, choosing what is contrary to your word, trusting in our own heart and leading on our own understanding. We do not want that, God. Lord, we do not want to look back and say, where has the time gone? We don't want to just keep spinning our wheels and doing the same thing and hoping for different results. Father, all of us want to be transformed. All of us want to be changed. All of us want to see your glory more fully in our own lives and in this world. So, Lord, this morning, teach us to number our days. Lord, give us the right perspective with this psalm, and I pray that, I pray that Moses' prayer may become our daily prayer as well, that we might see who you are clearly, see who we are, and daily call out to you. Father, thank you for this time that we get to spend in your word. Bless the preaching of it, and Father, I pray that you would convict and encourage and grow and save and sanctify your people this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, good morning. Happy almost New Year, um, New Year's Eve today. Um, so why this psalm? Um, oftentimes at New Year's, people spend time reflecting on the past year, and they spend time planning for the new one. Now, some of you don't like resolutions. Some of you say, well, it's just another day. Um, this is just a passage of time. But what this psalm tells us when it's telling us to teach us to number our days is that Christians must be a reflective people. We must be a planning people. And so whether you buy into the whole uh, calendar or not, uh, that's fine. But take this opportunity to, to be resolved to follow Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? Amen. The context of the psalm is that it is the only psalm that is attributed to Moses. Isn't that cool? Most of the time you think of you, the Psalms are of David, maybe a few of Solomon, maybe one of Asaph, but this is a Psalm of Moses. So when in thinking about this, I had heard that, you know, Moses wrote some Psalms, but before studying this passage and looking in more depth, I didn't know that he only wrote this one. And so Moses obviously is, as it says in the title here, a man of God. God spoke directly to him and he led the people out of slavery and into the promised land, although he did not enter himself. So we have much to learn from his prayer this morning. Someone who had a sweet, intimate communion with God. We want his prayer to become ours. What's interesting here, and I don't know if your Bible says this or not, but many of your Bibles likely say before Psalm 90, and if you don't have your Bibles open to Psalm 90, please be there. Um, it says book four in big uh, capital letters. Um, and so oftentimes we don't even know how is the book of Psalms even uh, you know, assembled? How is it div divided? Well, this Psalm 90 is the beginning of book four, and book three before it is one of the more raw, real books in all of the Psalms. Um, it oftentimes is a desperate plea and a crying out to God and a, a very real understanding of the trials that are around God's people. If you remember from Psalm 88, that is the darkest of all the Psalms, and Psalm 89 is dark as well. Let me read you a few verses. In Psalm 88, 14, we hear the psalmist say, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? In Psalm 89, 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? These are refreshing, aren't they? Have you ever felt like that before? Have you ever felt downcast? Have you ever felt like the Lord's presence is not near? 
Well, the, the beautiful thing about the Bible and the Psalms in particular is that it shows us the whole range of emotions. And so make the Psalms your prayer book. And you can turn to those Psalms 88 and 89 for fresh encouragement, knowing that if you're, you're, if you're depressed, if you're downcast, you're not the only one. But the Bible shows us how to pray through those seasons and how to get out of them as well. So if that's the end of book three, this is book four. And, and what is the response to that darkness? Well, the prayer in Psalm 89 was, where is your steadfast love of old? So the Psalms would have been assembled around the time of Solomon. And what the assemblers who were inspired by God did is they took a prayer of Moses and they purposely assembled it at the front of book four as a direct response to the end of book three. He said, where is your steadfast love of old? Well, I'll bring back a brother from old. I'll bring back Moses, and I'll show you where his steadfast love is of old. Moses himself knew God's steadfast love, and he, and he has something to say to Solomon's generation and our generation as well. So it is uh, appropriate that it's been arranged in this way. This is an encouragement, a fresh encouragement to us. I know many people talk about the Christmas blues. For many of us, Christmas is a wonderful time of, of lights, of family, of traditions, of food. Most importantly, food. Um, no, the birth of our Savior, obviously. Um, but for others, it might be a time of loneliness. You don't have your family around. You might feel the sting and the hurt of all those loved ones you used to gather around uh, the dinner table with. Some of them have, have passed. Some of them have gone to be with the Lord. Some of them are dead, and you don't know where their, their soul is. Many people have very negative associations with Christmas, so it can be a hard time as well. Regardless of how you view the Christmas season, what we do know is that as the end draws near, the times in our culture will be increasingly difficult for Christians. Trials will increase, and people will grow in their disobedience of God. So what we do know is that regardless of, of how your life is going right now, you will face more trials and hardships in this life. And so we need that same fresh encouragement that as you might ask one day, where is your steadfast love of old Lord? Well, Moses says, I'm of old, and I will come, and I will tell you where it is. It is here, and it is with you now. So this morning, we will see from Psalm 90 that God is eternally righteous, and we are but fleeting sinners. We must reorient, completely reorient our perspective and plead for grace and wisdom. That is what we'll see in the passage this morning. We'll first start out by looking at what it means that God is eternal and righteous. Conversely, we'll look and see how are we fleeting and how are we sinful. And lastly, we'll see what should our plead be, what should our prayer be in response to this reorientation of perspective. Are you ready this morning to have your perspective be brought to the throne room of God? Are you ready? I pray you are. How should we meditate upon God's nature? Read verses 1 through 4 with me. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed them, the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust. You say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. We see here that God is absolutely eternal, that he is from everlasting to everlasting, that he was before anything, and he will be after everything, that he is in the fullness of time. Moses understands this, 
both from direct revelation from God and from experience. Moses says that, God, you are our dwelling place. You are our home in all generations. So God stretching across all of time isn't just a philosophical concept for Moses, but he has seen how God is like that warm, nice, beautiful, candlelit home that God's people can walk into and sit down and be comfortable and dwell with their Lord. That people back, um, even when he covered Adam with a fig leaf, even when he blessed Abraham and called him out of the land of Ur, even now with Moses and his people, and of course, down to Solomon's age, and even in our time, God is our ever-present dwelling place. Moses got this experientially. So I want to ask you this morning, is the fact that God is eternal, is that something that you sing from time to time and you've just filed away in the library of your mind somewhere as true? Or do you pull that book out and bring it before you? And like Moses, do you meditate on God's eternal nature and allow it to shape your perspective and your prayers? I pray it does. I pray that it is an active meditation. Why is this important? Moses, of anyone, would have needed God to be his dwelling place, his home, because Moses knew homelessness. He started his life in slavery in Egypt without a home. This was not his permanent address. And then what happened? He took the people of God out of Egypt, and yet he, he wandered in the desert for 40 years. He did not have a permanent home. So for Moses especially, he was personally acquainted with the fact that God was his home. That no matter where he was, how transient he was, God was always there and always there to love him and to give him the comfort that his soul needed. Unlike the idols that they created back then, the Baals that they said, these are these fertility gods that we need rain for the crops to prosper this year, so we're going to build up these idols and put up these Asherah pole, we're going to build even a golden calf. To, to, to meet our present problems. Or even today, we look and we see, oh, there's the idol of the tech industry and technology and even of sports who go down to Levi Stadium. We're going to erect these idols to satisfy our needs. We see that every generation creates a new idol to, to meet a present need. But Moses is saying, no, you don't need those pop-up idols to, to, to meet your need. You have an everlasting God who has always been and always will be, and he's there, and he is, is your dwelling place. He must be your dwelling place. There's depth and richness to God, and he is all-wise, and he is before all things. And we must get that. Moses knew, and what we need to know in our prayers, is that reality bends to God's will, not the other way around. Just the same way that Highway 17 goes up into the Santa Cruz Mountains and it bends to the mountain and it takes, hopefully, the path of least resistance. The, I don't know, you might argue with me that sometimes it's bumpy, but the, a path that is bent to the curvature of the mountain. The mountain does not bend to the road, does it? The same way that reality, everything you know to be true, every command and law and everything that you know to be, to be false— Every idea or concept that might come up, all of these things must come in subjection to the will of God. Your reality, your experience is unique to you, but the only reason that has meaning is because it's in reference to the eternal God. Reality itself is shaped to God's will. And so what happens when there's atheists? What happens when there's people who rebel and, and, and raise their fists against the almighty creator? Well, they might think they're victorious for a time, but ultimately they are going against reality. And they will break upon the rocks if they continue in their rebellion. So we must, too, as Christians who say we are God's children, 
must not be delusional and live in our own personal alternate reality, but we must bend our will to the reality of the eternal, infinite God, because he always was and he always has been. And we are creation completely dependent on the creator. We can't forget that. A very, very popular sin is pride today, thinking that we are God, thinking that I can accomplish my goals, I can change the world on my own, I am important, I can go travel this day or that, and it will be done, I can control these things. That must be one of the prevailing idols of San Jose, if not the America or even the world today. This pride of forgetting that we are creatures and we must bend our will to God. Moses got this. Practically, how is this going to minister to your heart? How is this prayer going to help you? Well, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, I love this example. And I think I've given it before a long time ago in a sermon. J.I. Packer talks about a telescope and how if we are holding the telescope in the right orientation with the small end on our eye and the bigger end out there, and we are viewing God as, as he is, then all of those fears, worries, anxieties, that any transience you might have in life, any sense of comfort that you don't have, when you're viewing God through the right end of the telescope, you will see his grandeur. You will see his provision and his sufficiency. And those problems will, will quickly fade away. And you will see that God, like we sung, all I have is Christ and you are enough. God is my portion. But our problem is that we flip the telescope around and we look through the other end and it turns into a microscope. And oftentimes we don't view God functionally as who he is. And therefore, we look to created things to be our God and we look to created things to to solve our temporary worries, fears, and anxieties and and to, to give us the happiness and hope that we long for so desperately. So this morning, where is your telescope pointed? How is it oriented? Are you viewing God as he is? I pray so. God's eternity is not just a philosophical concept, but it is the ability to know that this eternal God can take care of, he's he's omnipotent, omnipresent, and he can take care of all of your needs this day. So he's not only eternal, we talked about in Sunday school, Aristotle not being a believer was smart enough by God's common grace to arrive at the concept of an eternal God. But he was not a Christian. So not only must we see God as eternal, but righteous as well. Look at verses 7 and 11 with me. Verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Sorry, that's verse 8. And then verse 11, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So we see that God is not just eternal, but he's righteous as well. And he has emotion, he has anger, and he has wrath. This might be jarring to you. You might open up a psalm and look to have an encouragement. And then, you're reading, and then you start to see about he's, how he's our home. And then you're like, wait, what? What is this God, about God's wrath and his anger towards me? What? It, so it might be jarring to you, but again, we must bend to his reality. This righteousness of God is both a good thing for us and it's a bad thing for us. It's a very good thing for us in that God does not take sin lightly and he does not allow rebels to continue in their rebellion. God will punish all sin and that makes him continually righteous and worthy to be praised. It's bad for us in that we are enemy number one. You and I daily rebel against this creator. We daily break his laws. We daily don't love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and do not love our neighbor as ourselves. So for us, this, this might be a frightening thing that should cause us to tremble. 
the righteousness of God must be something that we dwell on. Now, you could say, well, Kurt, chill out. Can't, can't God just chill out a little bit and, and deal with us a little more um, patiently and kindly? Well, this, this same question was posed to R.C. Sproul recently at, at a, uh, a roundtable, and some of you saw this on the Facebook. I posted this video, but those of you who haven't, the question was asked, if God is patient and slow to anger, then why, when man sinned, is God's wrath so severe and long-lasting? I love what R.C. says. He says, the, cre- the, the creation from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After God had said that the day you eat of this forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. But then Adam got to live another day, and another. And God then clothed them in their nakedness. It was pure grace. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people, R.C. said, and only the way that R.C. can. The question isn't why isn't uh, the, the God's wrath so severe. The question is, is why isn't it infinitely more severe? That must be our perspective and our orientation this morning. So if you came to this psalm looking for just some, some easy comfort, I hope that you are rightly confronted with the reality of God and you are reminded that you are worshiping a righteous judge at the same time. And you should tremble before him and know that he sees all of your sins. So we must meditate on his righteousness for the right perspective. He's so angry because he is so infinitely holy. He doesn't just have a short fuse, he's not impatient, but he's perfectly just. And for creation, for, for us to defile his creation, to, to sin against people, to pervert what he said is good, and then to also to, to belittle his glory and to, to create our own purpose, he is right for being righteously angry with us. So how is this anger expressed? We see in verses 3 and verse 7. Look with me. How, is, how does he actually express this anger? He says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. In verse 7, We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. So primarily, it's expressed through death. That's how God expresses his anger. Spiritual death, first and foremost. Spiritual death, breaking off from God. Not being in communion with him. And then the final result of that being physical death, which Adam and Eve should have got that day, but God was gracious and did not give them physical death that day. But we are still descendants of Adam and Eve, aren't we? And if you know the concept of original sin, that sin has been passed down from them. So it, they have implicated all of those who are born from their, their lineage, and all of us are then born with Adam's guilt and his sin already. The reason why children and babies and why people don't have to be taught to sin, but they naturally do it, is because it came from Adam's initial rebellion. And so, the, the, how does God express his righteous anger? It is through death, both spiritually and ultimately physically. Many unbelievers of the world can look around and say that, oh, I'm mere mortal, we're all mortal. The idea of numbering our days and knowing that life is short and life will come to an end isn't just what Christians talk about. The world talks about that too. Many of them create bucket lists so they can get done as many things as they can before that the end comes. They know life is short. They, they understand that. But what's different for the Christians is that we can appreciate and know why life is so short. 
Is it just, oh, this is the way it is, this is the cycle of biology, and gravity just pulls your organs down eventually till you die, and this is the world is set up, and that's why everyone dies around the ages of 70 or 80. No. Why does this death have to happen? It was not part of God's good initial design. It happened. Our mortality, the fact that we're not immortal, is linked directly to our depravity. Our depravity leads to our mortality. So even though many of you have believed in Christ and you know that you will live in eternity with God in heaven, you still have the impact of Adam's curse and you still have sinned yourself. And the consequences of that sin is God's wrath that causes you, as verse 3 says, to return, O children of man, back to the dirt. Another rendering of this is return, O children of Adam. So the same way Adam was formed out of the dust of the earth, and we'll go back into it. You too have been formed from the dust of the earth, and that and to the dust you shall return as well. And that is because of Adam's sin, but also your culpable sin as well. And that is right for God to return us back to the earth. This should humble us, brothers and sisters. As we make plans for the new year, as we go about our business, we should be extremely humbled by this perspective. Interesting, in verse 11, Moses asks a rhetorical question. Who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? What he's implying there is that we don't consider that. We do not consider God's anger or his wrath as we ought to. We go about our days either thinking, many people in this world think either God does not exist, or if he does exist, he must be happy with me because I'm a better person than those sinners over there. I am essentially a good person. And that's why the good person test is so effective in evangelism. Because generally, we self-justify and excuse our sin and think that God must not have any wrath towards me. So, we must remember again, to have our perspective shaped properly, we must remember that God is righteous and our sin is a big deal because it's against his holiness. So the necessary progression from this is if God is this way, if this is his nature, then who are we? How do we relate to this God? We continue. Who are we? We see in verses 5 through 8. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is being renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We, brothers and sisters, are fleeting. We're ephemeral. We're temporary. We're mortal. We are like grass that, that rises up and withers. We are like a mist. We are like a vapor. I could give you more synonyms. We, brothers and sisters, are, are here for a short time, and we have to get that at the heart of our being, because oftentimes we have the sense of self-importance. We elevate ourselves and think that I am, the world needs me, and I need uh, to, to do this and that for this to happen. I, we elevate ourselves to that place of God. We need to remember, remind ourselves that we are so fleeting, and God does not need you, and yet he loves to use you, and he desires for you to love and obey him. We'll see here in a second that that's not the end of the story. So if that sounds dis discouraging to you, hold on, and we'll get to the rest. But first, we have to recognize that this is our condition. We are fleeting. Verse 6 made me chuckle a little bit. It said, In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Sounds like a lot of New Year's resolutions, doesn't it? 
a lot of excitement and, and energy in the beginning. It's renewed in the morning, and then before it can come to full fruition, it withers. So that's, so Moses is talking about um, mankind and their efforts and, and how we continue to say, oh, there's this new exciting thing. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, there's a lot of energy and excitement, and then it, it withers and fades. Um, and so this is, this is our nature. We, we rise up, and then we're brought back to the, brought back to the dirt. Our culture hates this. A lot of times I look at my peers and the carrot is held out in front of them of pursue your career. You can change the world and your career is the most important thing. And so you should make your career your first priority and put everything else aside. This idea that what you can do has lasting value and significance and you can feel a sense of worth and importance by your career. Put all your eggs in that basket. I see a lot of my peers chasing that this day. So what happens is that people put off having kids. They put off being super involved in their church. They put off some of the clear commands of scripture because they are trying to avoid this fleeting nature. They want permanence. They want significance. They want to think that they are changing the world and have meaning. It's not only my peers. It's not only millennials, so to say. I also know older people who their wish is to only have a full, long life. And they say, you know, as long as I live to the ripe old age of XYZ, um, I will be happy. Well, we see that's futile as well in verse 10. It talks about that the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet they are soon gone and we fly away. Even hope to have some sort of significance or permanence in, you, in your, your lineage or the fact that you've reached a certain age of, of age in life. That can't even be your trust either, because while you might seem old to the world's standards, by, by God's eternal perspective, your life is still just a blip. So you should be humbled by that and not put your hope in how many years you can live or in meaning you can find by chasing a career. So we must rightly see ourselves in light of eternity as fleeting, finite people. More importantly than relating to God's eternity, we must ask the, more, the question, how should we relate to God's righteousness? We talked a little bit about it a second ago. But if verse 8 is true, that God has set our iniquities, our sins before him, even your secret sins, those dark things that you don't want anyone to know about, even those sins that you've committed that you don't even know you've committed, all of those are set, it says, in the light of God's presence. That should cause you to tremble. That all of your known and unknown, public and secret, all those sins in high definition right before the sovereign judge. Now, oftentimes, if your conscience has been seared, you won't care that much about that. That, that, that wouldn't bother you. That wouldn't cause you to tremble. Because you don't have the faith to truly believe that either you've sinned at all and it's that big a deal, or you don't believe that God is very just. And people sear their consciences all the time, and they, they, they don't tremble. They don't care. Do you care this morning? Does that bother you? Does the fact, when you read the verse, that your, all of your sins and iniquities will be laid in the light of God's presence, does that cause you to tremble? I hope so. We cannot simply just read our Bible, picking and choosing the verses about that will make us feel the most nice. But we have to see, read these verses as well of the reality of who we are. Because if we don't see who we are, then our perspective 
will be delusional. We will be out of step with reality, and I, that's not what I want for you, and that's what Mo, not what Moses or the psalmists wanted either. So what is the right response to this? That if God is eternally righteous and we are fleeting and sinful, how are we to respond? And this brings us to our last point. We see the response in verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Have pity on your servants. Simple and effective. A prayer that that is not trying to um, persuade God, that's not trying to say, but God, I'm Moses. Look at all these great things I've done. Look at this and that. I am a man of God. No. A simple prayer, have pity on us. That is Moses' response. If that's Moses' response, how much more should it be ours? So our, our last point, point three, is our plea for wisdom, joy, and most importantly, grace. Why do we do the prayer of sin and confession here every Sunday? It's not because we're trying to be liturgical, but it's because that we know as a church that if what we're going to do here is truly called worship, if what we're going to do here is truly come into the presence of this holy God, we have to take the posture Moses took here. We have to come before God and understand that I have no right to even be in church this morning. I have no right to come and pray to you. We have to come and say, God, forgive me for all of my sin. God, I am coming only by grace can I stand before you. Only because of the righteousness of Christ can I feel like I'm clean or know that I have confidence to call you my home or my dwelling place. That's why we do it. I pray that it is that when you hear the, sin of, the, the prayers of sin and confession in church, that you are able to pray along and meditate on your own heart. And I pray that that helps you throughout the week. As you're praying throughout the week, I pray that it's not just supplications, asking God for the things you want. But I pray that you come and, and, and make confession part of, a central part of your prayers. That's not because... Um, God is just some cruel taskmaster waiting to hit us over the head if we don't. But that's because we want a true relationship with our Heavenly Father, don't we? And in any true relationship, if there's stuff under the surface that you have not dealt with, if there's that elephant in the room and you're trying to ask for things, you know how that ends. That's not good. He wants that relationship first, and so we must come and bring those before him. So I pray that that reorients us properly in church this morning but that you are, your perspective is reoriented daily as you say, God, if this is who you are and this is who I am, have pity on me. An interesting question, though, is how can Moses and how can you and how can I ask God to return? It says, return, O Lord, to return to us and expect pity from him, mercy and grace from him, and not expect this wrath and anger that he talks so much about in verses 3 through 7. How can you, if you are truly a criminal, call on the police to come to your house? That should not make any sense. How is Moses able to do this, and how can we do this if we know that we're sinners and not expect for him to crush us in his wrath? If all of your secret sins, even the ones you don't know about, are in HD before him, how can we expect pity and not wrath? 
Well, Moses got something that I want us to get. Moses had future hope in a Messiah, in the seed of the woman that was promised back in Genesis 3 that Moses wrote himself, that there would be a deliverer that would come and take away the sins of Israel. Moses was putting his faith and hope in the character of God. God revealed to to Moses that he is slow to anger and compassionate and steadfast love. Moses counted on this character of God and God's promise that there would be a deliverer. And because of Moses' future hope in the Messiah to take away his sin and to pay for Moses' sin, Moses could come before the presence of God and trust God's word that his sin wouldn't be counted against him. We, brothers and sisters, have the benefit of looking to the past and seeing this Messiah, another title for him, Christ, Jesus, God who came into this earth, born of a virgin, the infinite, eternal God who is completely above all reality, entering into human history, the infinite becoming finite, the ocean being fit into a cup, This mind-boggling reality that happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus came to take the toils and troubles away from us. And Jesus experienced this life that Moses is praying here. It says that life is full of toils and troubles. Well, Jesus, of all people, experienced them. A life of toils and troubles. But the good news is that unlike Adam, who God said, return to the dust— who cursed his lineage, Jesus came to bless his lineage. Jesus came to be the firstborn of creation, to come and to say, all of those who are adopted into my family, you're not going to receive the curse of death, but you're going to receive the blessing and gift of everlasting life. Amen? Amen. That is how Moses could have hope, that he can turn to God and ask for pity and actually receive it, and that is your hope and my hope this morning too. That God can turn to us, and even though he sees all of your secret sins, he covers them in the blood of Christ. So they are no longer repulsive to him, but they've been paid for once and for all. And so that they no longer, the, the judgment and the, the justice that should be poured on us doesn't need to be poured on us anymore because it's already been, that, that cup of wrath has already been drained on the cross by Christ himself. So meditating on the wrath of God isn't just, shouldn't just make us like look at God and, and resent him or to think, oh, he just is some stubborn, angry father. But what it should do, brothers and sisters, is it should elevate your view of the cross. It should elevate your gratitude for what Christ did. Because if God didn't have to forgive you very much, then the cross doesn't become very important. I just needed a little boost, a little help. Oh, it's nice Jesus died for me. no. But if you see yourself as at a bottomless pit of sin, deserving a hell for eternity, knowing that you've offended this holy God, then the cross becomes everything to you. It becomes your boast. It becomes the balm that you want to apply to yourself every single morning. And if you, even if you know you're getting laid off that day, even if your, your spouse left you the day before, even, God forbid, if, if one of your family members died, you can wake up and you can pray this prayer along with Moses in the morning and you can say, God, I can come to you and you will have pity on me. Refresh me this morning and may you place your steadfast love upon me. 
And that, brothers and sisters, will not take away or perfectly change all of the emotional hurt and toils and troubles in this life. It will not, it will not magically put a smile on your face. But what it will do is it will give you the peace that transcends all understanding. It will give you a joy in the midst of those hardships and trials that allows you to cry for those who you've lost, that allows you to feel the aches and pains of your body that's withering away and, and be frustrated with the sickness in your body and yet not let that consume you. Isn't that good news? That we have this balm of Christ that we can go to. Are you applying that balm to yourself? Are you coming to God for fresh grace each day? Or have you trusted in it once and left it there? I pray you bring it every morning and pray along with Moses to have the same hope that because Jesus was punished and all of our sins that were brought to the daylight were put on him and he died for them once and for all, we can be forgiven. And because he rose from the dead three days later and appeared to his, his disciples and 500 at one time and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, we know that he is living and alive and he is with us as well. We know that the cross worked that the payment was actually successful and that we can be forgiven. Hallelujah. So, our right plea for grace must be what comes first if we contemplate God's eternity and righteousness and our fleeting nature. That must be what comes first, but that, it doesn't have to stay there. There's other components to our relationship with God that are vital as well, and Moses prays here that we have to get. So an outworking of this grace will be that we also plead for wisdom and joy as a product of this grace. Read with me in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses is saying that in order to combat the fact that you, like a flood, will just wash us away, that I am like grass that is here today and gone the next, the, the, what Moses does to combat this is saying, God, I need perspective. I need a heart of wisdom. And the way he does this is by saying, teach me to number my days. Numbering our days should lead you to gratitude and right prioritization of your life, brothers and sisters. It's interesting, I, I read about a lot of theologians of old and great men of God used to put a skull, maybe not a real one, but a skull on their desk in their study. I always thought that was strange. And then when Mark Driscoll came around and wore skulls on his shirts, I heard a, a cry foul, hey, you're, you're elevating death and you're glorifying in what's gross and wicked. And I was like, why are, why are people like Al Mohler having skulls on their desks if skull, we shouldn't glorify this, this idea of death? Well, the reason why men like Al Mohler and John Owen would put a skull on their desk is because it reminds them that in their work, they are numbering their days. They see before them that one day, very soon, they will die. It reminds them of their mortality. And what that does is it does not cause them to go into a spiral of depression, but what it does is it fixes a laser focus on what they have to do in that moment and gives them appreciation for every breath they've had so far and allows them to prioritize what they must do that day and what they must make of the rest of their lives. They allow that idea of numbering their days to bring grace to them to, to prioritize that. So a few things this means for us. First of all, you must obey God's commands today. This should call for a radical obedience 
in the moment. I know a lot of people say, I'm going to get serious with God later in life. Or, I really enjoy this sin right now, and it's comfortable, and I know that breaking from it would be really hard. And maybe when I'm older, maybe when my circumstances are a little easier, I'll put it off. No, teaching you to number your days says mortify that sin right now. Obedience today. Secondly, it will shape and reorient your priorities. For example, like I talked about earlier, vocation and children. Instead of saying, well, you know, I'm going to, and what used to be having children, people would get married in their their early 20s and, and have children then, Today, statistically, most people are, are not getting married until they're 30 and having their first kids in their early 30s. Um, and there's a lot of issues and difficulties that come along with that. Um, and, and I can't even imagine uh, what it's like f- for, for guys who are, who are just like wanting to get married and, and are just waiting this long. But a lot of times, they're, they're, they're just so caught up in themselves that they're not looking at that. They're not, count, they're not counting the days. They, they think, well, I'm, if I'm going to look to my career now to give me importance, I can, I can just put off this marriage thing till later. Now, I'm not commanding you that this is what you must do. I'm giving you an example that if your days are numbered, if you know that your tomorrow isn't promised, then this should be something that you know this is a godly desire to be fruitful and multiply, and you should, you should pursue this in the day. That's one example of this outworking of teaching you to number your days, of not putting off things. Another two things that brought, that brought to mind that we must prioritize, um, evangelism. A lot of us think that I'm not a very good evangelist. I'm kind of scared of people's opinions. And I have this family member who's really against the gospel, but maybe I don't need to talk to them today. Maybe I'll wait a few years from now, and maybe hopefully things will get a little easier. Well, numbering your days will give you a renewed sense of urgency in your evangelism. Hopefully God will put the weight of their soul on your heart, and you will confront your own fear of man, and you'll confront your own um, sin that doesn't view God through the right end of the telescope, and you'll be able to put those sins to death and prioritize evangelism rightly, knowing that you don't necessarily have tomorrow. Another aspect is stewardship. W- rather than waiting till you are, let's say, in the prime of your career or have reached a certain level up the managerial chain to start giving um, sacrificially or a lot to the church, you have to ask yourself, how can I be a good steward today? Even if I'm a broke college student, or even if I'm a child who's getting a little bit from allowance, how can I be a good steward of God's money this day? Not waiting until maybe someday down the line when, when times are more prosperous and I can give out of my excess rather than giving out of um, the core of what God has blessed me with. Those are just some, a few of the practical things that come out of teaching us to number our days. I'm sure, I'm sure dozens of things probably popped in your mind, and I pray that you meditate on this and ask for yourself what are ways that this will actually help me to reprioritize my day? Those are just a few examples to, to hopefully get your minds turning there. Now, this can be perverted as well. I alluded to some people outside the church say, well, you only live once, so you might as well do this stupid thing. No, you should never use this as, as an, a, a justification to just experiment or to do things that are clearly against the word of God. Um, but we should see it as an opportunity to appreciate God. Uh, and to, to, to number our days and to, to say, with the life I have left, I don't know if it's even here, but help me have a laser focus on what you've called me to do, Lord. But this is important. Although wisdom, teaching you, giving you a heart of wisdom, if you remember from Ecclesiastes, 
it might result in vexation. It might result in frustration. Knowing more about how the world works, knowing, knowing more about um, what you were supposed to do, and maybe engaging in a very difficult calling, sometimes you might have, be a more wise person, but if you're just left there, then knowing more, you might get more discouraged. So should we just hope for more wisdom? Or should we also pray for joy and gladness as well? How is it that we can gain wisdom, but pair that wisdom with right joy and gladness that causes us to have a, a, a relationship with God that isn't just focused on, um, on, on the wrath, but a relationship with God that can actually turn to him in his steadfast love and find him as a home? Well, verse 14 gives us the answer there. It says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. dissatisfaction is something that we all face. I'm sure if you thought hard enough right now, you don't have to think back very long to a moment in your life when you were dissatisfied with your circumstances. Dissatisfaction comes from looking at finite things and expecting them and hoping them to turn out the way you want them to. Dissatisfaction comes from not having this right orientation toward God. So we need to combat that dissatisfaction with this prayer. See here that Moses prays, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. The word steadfast love there um, is, I think, the most, one of the more beautiful words in Hebrew. It's chesed. And it can mean covenant faithfulness, steadfastness, loving kindness. It's God's promise that he will always always will love his people. And that love is abounding and exceeding and it's overflowing. So we have to pray each morning, God, satisfy us with your steadfast love. Make it so that your steadfast love actually gets at my human condition, actually can heal my wounds and give me hope for this day. Your steadfast love cannot remain out there as a theological concept, but it must come in here, and it must change how I feel. It must bring to you the satisfaction that your heart so desires. It's not natural, brothers and sisters. It's so easy to get tossed by the world and to get dissatisfied with things, and so we must come to God in humility for who we are and pray, God, satisfy me with your steadfast love. in looking at the new year and looking at the things you have to do. Sometimes we are tempted to say, well, what, what does it really matter? What if I do accomplish my goals? In the big picture of things, will it even be significant? Will, are we relegated to just meaninglessness? Well, the good news here is that it doesn't have to be relegated to meaninglessness. That even though we are fleeting even though you and I are like a vapor, because God is eternal, he can ground our work in him, and anything done for his glory will last for eternity. It won't just get washed away. Everything done against the will of God, anything done um, not in, in, for his glory, it will get washed away, and it will be meaningless. But we can have hope that even if your job seems very mundane, even if you feel like no one even sees this, or what does this really even matter, you can be reminded here that, that because God is eternal, your work can then become eternally significant. 
Isn't that good news? We see at the end of this psalm, Moses praying, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands. So we need God to not only show his power to us, for God to work on our behalf, to do the things we want him to do in this life, to, to do miracles in our own life, to change us and to change the people around us and to help us every day, but we need God to establish the work of our hands because if he's not establishing it, it'll just be like the sand that crumbles right through your fingers and all of your resolutions and all of your hopes and all of your dreams will be for naught. So we need to find our value in God or else it will fade. If you don't believe in God, then you can look at the Mona Lisa, you can look at the most beautiful painting in the world, and you can say, well, all that is is just a bunch of little dots of paint on a, on a canvas. That's all it is. That all it is is a collection of little dots of paint. But if you believe in a creator, if you believe someone painted it, then that painting has significance, and it's worth millions and millions of dollars, and it's put into a beautiful case not to be touched by anyone. Do you view your work daily as just little dots of paint? Or do you see that because God created you, and if you're doing it for his glory, it actually has significance and meaning? Not because you think you're so important, or you give yourself your own sense of worth and significance, but because God has said this is, this is significant. Are you rooting your work and our, your plans for 2018 back into the eternity of God? I pray you are. Because if you do, no work is meaningless, brothers and sisters. And that is good news for us. We need God to, to, to establish the work of our hands and work on our behalf. Moses needed God to bring his people into the promised land, to wipe away their enemies and establish, uh, establish the community there. He knew, he knew that he could not do that on his own. Think about the things you have coming up. Think about the, the hurdles that seem insurmountable in your life. You need to plead with God, God, Show me your work, as it says here in verse 16, and establish the work of my hands that it might be for you. And if we have put our faith in Christ, if we believe that Christ has taken the wrath away from us, and he's reversed that curse, that everything we're do, that we will indeed return to the dust, but that won't be the end of the story. Our soul is eternal, and it will go to be with the Father forever. If we believe that, then we can have joy and we can have gladness and we can have that wisdom to, to tackle um, the, the issues and the problems and the goals we have for 2018. Now you might ask, this is a prayer and that's a nice prayer, but was this prayer answered? I think it's fitting to wrap up and say, yes, it was. Listen to these verses in Isaiah 54. It addresses perfectly Moses' concerns. God says, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. You hear that? The same God that was before the mountains, God's saying that they will be removed one day, but my steadfast love will remain on you. Prayer answered. Also, it says, uh, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great peace shall be, uh, and, and be the peace of your children. So we see here in verse 18, God asking, or Moses pleading with God, God, show your glorious power to my children, to the, the future generations of all your people. And in Isaiah 54, we're told that yes, indeed, God answered with an affirmative and will bless his children. God answered this prayer, and so we can be so thankful that he can answer it for us as well. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but there was a perfect reversal in this psalm. 
In verse 5, it says that we are, because we're fleeting, we'll be swept away. In verse 17, it's a prayer that we'd be established. Swept away is replaced by establishment. In verse 9, Moses ponders the wrath of God. He says, I'm under your wrath all my days, in verse 9. But in verse 14, he asks God that he would be under his steadfast love. So we see here that Moses, with his perspective oriented to God's righteousness, the wrath is replaced with said, or God's steadfast covenant love. The last reversal, in verse 10, the days are filled with toil and trouble. This life is hard. The, the fall has caused, thorn, caused thorns and thistles to, to, to frustrate your work, but is that the end of the story? No, verse 15 reverses that. And, and we see in verse 15 that it is possible for us to be glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. It is possible to live out the rest of our days with gladness and not just be um, confined to just the toil and trouble of this life. Brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, join Moses, reorient your perspective, number your days. And my prayer for you and my prayer for this church is that God would establish the work of our hands, that he would bless it, and that this wouldn't just be a New Year's Eve thing, but that daily we would come to God for fresh grace, asking him to to orient us towards his eternal righteousness, see ourselves for who we are, and to be eternally appreciative for the work of Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we truly need you. Father, this life is vexing, and oftentimes when we grow in wisdom, when we see things how they are, they just look even that more ugly. We know that this world has fallen, and we know that we add to that brokenness. We sin daily. And so thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for your servant Moses' prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would establish us. Lord, help us to be satisfied each and every morning with your steadfast love. Elevate that in our hearts. May we turn the telescope in the right direction and be overwhelmed by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.